0: The best kind of support that you'll ever get is the support that you give yourself truly. And you have to do that first before you can really do what you need to do in your role and in the community. And we constantly are thinking about putting others first and we're constantly thinking about pushing other people into the spotlight. But to best serve your communities, you have to, you have to serve yourself
1: first. You're listening to Create Community. I'm your host, Marsha Drucker. On this podcast, we're exploring the human side of community. I'm chatting with some amazing community builders to define what community truly means. Joining me today is Holly Firestone. Holly has built and run some of the largest enterprise communities and community programs in the world. At Atlassian, she spent two years building their powerhouse user group program. From there, Holly joined Salesforce, where she spent five years leading and shaping the user group program, evolving the MVP program, developing the community conferences program, and for the final two years, also running the online trailblazer community. She's currently head of community at Venify, where she's building a community for security professionals that are invested in the success and management of machine identities. In this episode, Holly shares why she bet her career on community and how she's grown and progressed in the industry. She opens up about the ups and downs of her journey, and we take a deep dive into community and mental health. So let's jump right into it. Polly, welcome to Create Community. I'm super excited to chat with you today very excited to be here. Thank you. So we've been connected for quite a while. And I feel like I've been watching your journey and vice versa, following you on Twitter. So I'm stoked to finally take a deep dive with you into community. So to kick these episodes off, I really love to get an understanding of how my guests actually became community builders. I think, you know, I haven't encountered anyone yet who knew like in high school or early on that this is what they wanted to do. And everybody has had a fairly unique path to it. So curious, how you got into it. Let's take it back all the way to high school. What were you like? What were some of your interests when you were growing up? And how did you find belonging at an early age? Yeah, so even taking it back further to middle school. So middle school, I was definitely an outcast.
0: I was not one of the cool kids. I was socially awkward and just doing whatever I could to, to find a way to fit in, but did not succeed very much on that. And when I started uh, high school, my parents made me join an organization called BBYO, which is a youth organization. It's an organization for Jewish kids In high school, and they essentially break you off into things called chapters. It's like fraternities and sororities, essentially, but for Jewish kids in high school. And so I got really, really active uh, in BBYO uh, from my freshman to junior year. Started off, they have like boards that you can run for. So you've got like your individual chapter board, or you can run for like the city board, or you can run for the regional board that goes across you know all the all the groups. And when I was a sophomore, I ran for regional board and won, which is awesome because you usually don't do that until you're a junior. And I was writing the newspaper for everybody that went out to all the chapters. And then the next year, I focused on being the city. It's called Mitt Mom. So essentially, it's bringing in all the new members and connecting them to their big sisters or whatever it was. And so that one, I think, is it's pretty obvious how that <laughs> relates to community. Um, but I was super involved in that organization. And I think that that was a, a turning point for me because I found somewhere not only that I, I felt like I belonged but I really thrived and was able to take a leadership role and push things forward in the way that I wanted to. Student-wise, though, I was a terrible student. So, <laughs> so it was definitely something that like kind of gave me the confidence and the connection that I was looking for in high school.
1: That's so awesome. That's incredible that you were able to take on a leadership role at such a young age and kind of get that experience and get such an interesting understanding of community through you know your, your religious identity and being part of that culture. So what did you end up studying? Post secondary? So,
0: I studied communication. So, media arts, public relations, and advertising was my specialization with my communication degree. But then I also had to, you know, study a lot of communication and culture and group communication, things like that that kind of went alongside. And then I was pretty close to also having a minor in journalism. It didn't exist then, but now it does. And so I think I would have had pretty close to enough credits to have that. So, a lot of journalism, you know, and media classes as well.
1: That's really cool. And how did you end up starting your career out of that?
0: So the first thing is that I, I took an internship. It was required at my school. And I was doing marketing for the Austin Convention and Visitors Bureau, which is really cool. I love Austin. I live here now, obviously, um, back here. And I was a music marketing intern. So Austin is the live capital music of the world because there's more music venues per capita than anywhere else in the world. And uh, and so music's a huge part of what draws people to the City and our musicians. And so I got to work on some really cool stuff there. We put an Austin CD together every year. And I got to work on that and meet the artists and book the uh, free artists that played during South by Southwest. And then you know the mayor would do a proclamation every week for a different local artist. And so I got to write the bios for that and go see that happening. So it was a really, really cool experience. And then uh, another internship that I did right after that was for an event planner. She was mostly focused on weddings. She did some corporate events, but working with them on that piece. And then my real first job was I was um, working at Hyatt in Austin in their sales and catering office. And so I was doing business travel sales, coordinating, not really
1: a salesperson, and then cater- catering stuff as well. That's so fun. What a unique way to, to start your career. And how did you end up transitioning into tech from that world? So I I moved to San Francisco and I got a job working for Birthright. Birthright is uh, a
0: Jewish nonprofit and they um, fund people people going to Israel. between the If you're between the ages of 18 and 26, and you have at least one Jewish grandparent, you have this free opportunity to go to Israel. And so I worked for this organization that was building alumni communities when they got back from the trip. And so that was my first foray into community. But being in San Francisco, you know, it, it's very natural that you would be gravitating towards tech. I mean, I was making no money in that first job. I was making $38,000 a year in San Francisco. So it was not a sustainable... Whoa. No. Yeah. Not a sustainable way to live. You had to really want to do that. And so I hopped around a little bit from there. But I saw a a job listing for TaskRabbit for a role for Marketplace Community Manager. And I saw everything that was in that role. And I was like, this is me. This is what I want to do. And I interviewed for the role a few times, got kind of the final and did not get the job. But then that led me to just looking at community management jobs. And that's how I landed at Atlassian with my first job for community management in tech. But I actually applied for a uh, event planning role. I didn't really want to do event planning anymore, but I wanted my foot in the door in tech. Um, And I interviewed, I got to the last round, there were 2 of us left and I didn't get the job. But somebody I interviewed with, Brittany Walker, who's at Webflow now, she called me back essentially. She was like, Hey, I know you didn't get the event planning role, but I have a community management role open if you're interested. And I was like, actually, that's what I really want to be doing. And so that's uh, that was my foot in the door. And there's an amazing recruiter, Michelle Delcombre at Atlassian, who really helped
1: me get in there and get my foot in the door also. That's amazing. Totally meant to be. So it seems like you really kind of like bet your career on community early on and you really let passion for it drive you, even though at the time, you know, you mentioned that, yeah, that first job at Birthright was not paying a lot. And, you know, community roles back in the day when it was still really just emerging, weren't paying a ton either. Did people? Think you were kind of crazy to you know jump right into it?
0: Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, and I tell this story, and <laughs> my husband doesn't love it, but he was my boyfriend at the time, and he is a software engineer, an iOS engineer working at Square. He's been there about ten years, and you know I was really, I was really pushing on community. And time I was at Atlassian, and I, I loved the work I was doing. I didn't love my manager, and I wasn't getting a lot of the resources I needed. But I really kept pushing, and you know I'll never forget us sitting down and having a talk, and he was like. Sure, this is really what you want to do? Like, is this really the career path? Like, maybe you should think of something else. And I can't blame him looking back. Like, I wasn't making any money. I was miserable at work. I wasn't getting resources. You know, the job opportunities were slim. And I said, no, like, I really, this is really important to me. And I really think this is going to be really important. I think it's going to be something big. And I, most importantly, I loved doing it. So I stuck with it. And now he is always getting to eat his words on that.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I love that. That makes me really happy. (laughs) Yeah.
0: And he, he's happy about it too. He loves that he's using his words on that because I get to do what I love.
1: So both Atlassian and Salesforce, where you ended up working later, obviously, huge companies, massive enterprise communities. How did those communities come to exist? Were they kind of established early on in the companies or something that came to be as those companies scaled? I'm really going to have to reach
0: back into my brain for this one. Um, for Atlassian, you know, I don't think it necessarily was around at the very, very beginning. But the way that it started was that a bunch of people in the community got together and essentially put together a user group. And they invited some of the Atlassian product managers to join for that. And that kind of spurred the idea of of starting an official user group program. And so when I started, user groups already existed. The program was being run, uh, like I said, by Brittany Walker, but she was under-resourced as well. And she ended up leaving like 2 or 3 months after I started. And so that program just really needed needed a cleanup. It needed you know to really understand where we were at and tracking and measurement. So it looks like we had, I don't know, over 200 groups, but really, that was how many had ever been onboarded. So really getting back down to the roots of how to build the community and how to track from the beginning and make sure that everything that you're tracking is accurate. So you really know what's going on in the community. If you think about it like a house, I was redoing all the plumbing. And you know, because it just it needed to happen in order to scale. So I spent a lot of time doing that. And that's you know where it started. So it all started with the user group program, the AUG program, and Salesforce. Salesforce community was started by Erica Cool, which I'm sure a lot of people that are listening know who she is. But she is the person who started the incredible Salesforce community. She spent 18 years at Salesforce. She was a trainer at first, training people who were uh, taking their admin certifications, doing that kind of training. But then I think a few years into it, there was a listserv that she started because all of these people really wanted to talk to each other, all of these Salesforce admins. So it started as a listserv and then it built from there. And so she had this online community. And then the MVP program got really big. Um, Top Contributors program is the MVP program. And then I came in and I really pushed hard for us to take a new look at the user group program because it wasn't getting much attention, kind of the same thing. She didn't have a lot of resources. So kind of just swing in one direction or the other, swing to the online, then swing over to the MVP. And I came in and really pushed on user groups and kind of the same thing. We didn't really know how many we had and tracking the scale, but we probably had when I started 60 or 70 active groups. then by the time I left, we had over a thousand.
1: Wow, that's amazing. So it sounds like in both of those roles, you you spent quite a bit of time sort of formalizing things and cleaning things up. Was there a balance with being able to draw projects that you really wanted to bring to the forefront and things that you were really passionate about?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that the first and foremost, like I was very passionate about being the fixer. I think that without building that really solid foundation and the ability to track, scale, and optimize, you really can't be innovative. You can't do more because your team is so small. So if you don't get those things that are easy to automate and easy to put into a process, if you don't get those down first, you don't have time or chances to innovate in the way that you could. So especially if you're growing rapidly. So that is something that I'm really, really passionate about. But there are a bunch of other things that I was able to do. Top of my head, one of the ones for Atlassian was I built the leaders, the user group leaders into a community themselves. So and and did it all using our products. Like We had HipChat. So we created HipChat groups for them. And then we had Jira Service Desk, which is like a ticketing system, like a Zendesk. Um, And so building that out so the community or user group leaders had a way to contact our team and be able to track what was going on. So building them into a community and building resources for them was huge and helped us scale massively. Um, And then kind of the same thing for the, the Salesforce user group leaders. Before I started, we never had a session for them at Dreamforce or really anything. So getting them all together in a room and presenting to them on what was going on with the program or one of the things I started was a feedback survey. Something as simple as that that we weren't doing. And so giving them a feedback survey every year, building the roadmap from that. And then at Dreamforce, we would tell them, this is what we heard from you. This is what we're building. This is the score you gave us last year. This is the score you gave us this year in hopes that they would all go up or if they went down, how we were going to address it. So I think building communities out of leaders of communities is really, really powerful. And it also just goes to helping helping scale and helping people feel appreciated.
1: Yeah. I think that's such an important thing. So I think like a big misconception that I definitely had about companies like Salesforce and Atlassian and really large enterprise communities is that I figured that the community team itself would be really large too, and that it would be very well resourced. But speaking with you and you know speaking with other professionals in the field, it couldn't be further from the truth. A lot of the time, it's, it's almost sort of like a startup within this massive company. What was that like for you? I know that you were a one-woman show for a while at Atlassian. And are there any other common misconceptions that people have about enterprise? communities
0: I think that of course it was just it was really really hard work and you set these goals that you really want to achieve these milestones that you really want to achieve for your community and it's very hard to get there of course on your own and you know so I was working a crazy hours I would work the whole day in the US and we were an Australian company and I would work the whole Australian day too it was it was absolutely crazy and not a smart thing to do but you know at that point I just wanted to prove the value of community and if I just kept inching along I wouldn't have ever been able to do that and I really wanted to show results so I could make a case to get more resources. And I think that's pretty much what happened but it was really hard for a while and deciding you know what the priorities were and what was going to show the most value where I needed to dedicate my time and then at that point when you're building a lot of the stuff you're doing isn't scalable you need to have you know that one-on-one relationship with a lot of people in your community so you know it's just tricky but I think that I think that I invested my time in the right places to make it worthwhile and I think when I left atlassian the the responses that I got from the community really showed that they felt, like they had something really built for them and they were appreciated and you know, all the things you want to hear from your community at the same time as my, um, my CEO at Atlassian I mean, was awesome and really understood the value of community. And that's really all you can ask for. So I think that that's what I was building towards and it was really hard and I put a lot of time in to do it, but the payoff was great. And then some other popular misconceptions. I would say that's probably the biggest one is that you've got tons of people and tons of resources. I think what's interesting, is that even if a company values community, it doesn't necessarily mean that they value the community professional. So they understand that now... And I think this is happening a lot of places that companies understand community is so important. And you need to build a community and all of these different pieces. But... Not necessarily how important the community professional is in that equation. So, you know, you'll see a lot of people that get community added on their plate as a marketing thing. And so they're a marketer and it's kind of a side job for them. Things like that. I feel like that happens a lot in enterprise companies because, you know, you've got big teams and you don't necessarily dedicate someone to the community. Or if you do, they don't necessarily have a community background. And I think that does a disservice to our industry because somebody with experience is certainly going to have better results most of the time, of course, not all the time but most of the time than someone who doesn't. So I think that that's another thing is not just that there's not as many resources as you would think, but there's not as much understanding of the industry to make sure that it's
1: resourced the right way. Yeah, it's so true, but I'm really happy to see that. I think it's changing, right? Especially 2020, it seemed like community is something that's really trending and really top of mind. And I think it's like, it's slowly starting to change. I think community
0: is not even, I think, I know it is, you're absolutely right, but it's the community profession piece like we have been working so hard on selling the value of community for so long and why community is important that we've done an amazing job of it companies know everybody's talking about it 2020 changed a lot and sped things up but the community professional i think is where our next challenge is is you know quantifying the the value of having someone with experience that's running your community
1: versus just giving someone a community role and hoping they figure it out for sure it's so important to get the right person in that role so i know that hiring is something that you're really proud of Out of and something that you're you're really amazing at. Do you have any tips to share for companies and people that are building that headcount in community? What are some things that have worked really well for you? Yeah, so it
0: all comes down to metrics, I think, and making sure that you can quantify the work that you're doing and that you can quantify what could happen if you had more headcount. So, you know, I think selling the vision is a really really important piece of this, and this is where you want to go, and this is what you're going to see in return. But to get there, we need X, Y, and Z, and if if we don't get that then you'll get the layer below and if we don't get that you'll get the layer below so I'm not saying you have to create you know 20 layers but make sure that there's an understanding of if this is the north star for you this is the vision for our business then this is what we need to make it happen and so making sure that case is very clear about what's needed and why if they want to get to that piece and if you know that's a, a no or if they limit it in some way then you have to make sure that they really understand what comes off if you don't have those resources
1: and i think our- big thing is being able to balance your community needs with the needs of the business. And I think that's that's a big challenge for, for a lot of professionals in the field. How do you go about it? And have you ever struggled with that?
0: Yeah, I think it's really tricky. And I use a term called authentic community intentions, and you can't see, but I'm using my air quotes. So I think it's really important when you think about where you're going to take your community expertise and work and build a community that the the organization or company that you're working for has authentic community intentions. And so any business or company that, that has those intentions, the right intentions for community, they will understand that your role, and I say this all the time, your role as a community professional is it's a balancing act, and you work 50% for the company and you work 50% for the community. And so, making sure that you're representing interests in the best way on both sides is really, really important. And making sure also that you're kind of translating interests back and forth too. Like, something may not resonate that comes from your business. And so, making sure that your community understands that and then they help work with you on making sure that it makes sense to the, the wider population, all of those things are really important. But I do think it's a balancing act, and I do think you have to work on both sides. You know, and there's some stuff that may not be polished and beautiful and amazing that you want to share with your community first. And it's a little bit more raw and it's, you know, like I said, not polished, but it builds some trust between you and them. And maybe. And your company just kind of has to understand that, I think. And, you know, they're not going to be in every conversation necessarily. You keep some of the conversations walled off from your company so that they can have really open, honest conversations, you know, without being worried they're going to hurt a product manager's feelings. So I think there's little pieces like that that are, you just have to come to an understanding on both sides of why
1: you're in this balancing act. For sure. I think like establishing that trust both with the community and internally is something that really sets successful people in the field apart. So can you share a little bit about what Venify is and what drew you to the opportunity there?
0: Yeah. So uh, Venify is a cybersecurity company and we focus on the management of machine identities. So it's a very, very technical product with a very technical audience. And so you think about how Okta is an authenticator for people. And so that's essentially what Venify does is we're protecting machines because machines are talking to each other all day, every day. It's only going to get crazier. Um, and bigger, and so protecting those is really, really important. So the audience, you know, that we're talking to is a lot of people that are on security teams and security specialists. And I, I was drawn to this role. Well, they reached out to me first of all, and I always, you know, at least like to have a conversation with recruiters because I like to learn more about the role. I can't tell you how many times I've actually talked to a recruiter and told them how they need to change their job posting or that they're actually hiring for a social media manager and not a community manager. So I talk to them all the time and tell them those things. And then I have a list of people that I think are amazing that I know are looking. And I'll give those to the recruiters as well. Even if I'm not looking, obviously, I talk to them. So I I did talk to this recruiter. And it was really... It sounded like an interesting role. And I was at Salesforce at the time. But I decided I would talk to the hiring manager who's the CMO. And I remember going into this conversation thinking, right, like I'm going to leave Salesforce for some small security company. And then I Left the conversation, I was like, huh, I think I'm gonna leave Salesforce for a small security company. Because <laughs> she was just, she was an amazing person to connect with. I think she really understood community. And you know, I have not been shy about sharing that. I do not think that community belongs in marketing. So I was a little bit apprehensive about that, being that she was the CMO, but she just really got it. And I really enjoyed that conversation. And the more and more I thought about it, the more and more I thought about this audience. And, you know, the people that that are in this community and security. Professionals overall are a little bit neglected for a lack of better words. You know, you think about the security professionals at the businesses where you work. Do you know them? Do you know what they do all day? And what I've seen is that there's a lack of professional development opportunities for people in these roles. And then also on top of that, they're not getting a lot of accolades. Like if everything's working perfectly, then everything's working perfectly. But if something goes wrong, who's on the chopping block? You know, if something isn't secure, if there's a breach, who's getting fired? So it's, it's a little bit tricky for this audience. And I think that a community is something that can be really amazing for them because they they need each other, really. They don't have anyone else to talk to. Some of them are the only people that do what they do. And it's a good way for them to also have some professional development opportunities too.
1: Absolutely. So what kind of formats and you know events are you running for your community? Well, I started January 6th, and I think
0: we all know what happened just a couple months later. So one of the things I noticed when I started is that we had not even really built this audience yet. It's a startup and the marketing team is small-ish. And I say startup. I mean, the company's been around for a while, but small-ish marketing team and no customer marketing person. And so really, there was a lot of focus on CISOs, chief information security officer. So that very C-suite level, but not a ton of work that had been done building this audience. And so in 2019, company had its first summit. So all the customers that came together and you know, it was a conference. And one of the things that they noticed was that at the end of each session or the end of each meal, they couldn't rip people away from each other. They realized that these people had never been in a room with other people that did what they do. It's much like I felt actually when I went to CMX Summit for the first time first time. And I was in a room with tons of community professionals. I I was floored. I'd never been in a room with all these people. So same thing for them. And that's how Venify decided that they wanted to build a community. So fast forward, I start in January. And then I start trying to figure out what's going on here and how the product works. And I still... Ugh. But um, <laughs> it's very technical. But I started really thinking about what I was going to do with the community. And since the audience didn't necessarily exist yet, that was the first place that I had to attack. So where are these people? How do we reach them. So I started with the Slack workspace. We pay for it so that people can use Okta to sign in and it's very secure because that's another thing about security community is that it has to be super secure. You know, you can't have it, people in there wandering around that shouldn't be. So started with Slack and just building up the audience in Slack. We had our next customer summit virtually, of course, just a couple months later. So we didn't actually really launch we started like kind of beta testing stuff and getting feedback from people. We didn't really fully launch anything until just august and that's where predominantly everybody lives and it's just sharing content asking questions and getting feedback but now we're taking this this next level approach to it and you know we're expanding the community so not just thinking about our customers in this very specific role but thinking about everybody that is invested in the success of machine identity management everybody that cares about protecting machines and so there's going to be kind of different parts of the community for these different audiences but we have tons of audiences we have developers that build on our platform. We have we have partners in our ecosystem. We have these CISOs that I mentioned. So there's a bunch of different audiences. And we were doing a disservice by just having something for this group of customers that hadn't even really been built up yet. So I think it's going to tie in a lot with what we do for our customers over the next year and continuing to build that up. But now that we are expanding, we're going to move to a full-fledged community platform and start some other really great programs to go along with that.
1: That's amazing. That's so exciting that you get to build this out and to really like start with a community of customers, but connect all these other people that are interested in the industry and in your product together as well. I think that's so needed.
0: It's awesome. And I'm really
1: excited to have this
0: blank slate. But I think one of the first things that I recognized was that it is very difficult to do on my own. And especially, it's just different than, than doing it on my own in at Atlassian because there was already something a little bit established in here. Like I think that there's a community mindset internally that we really need to work on and set expectations around to make sure that everybody understands what the community is and how they can engage with the community and thinking community first so you know I'm very involved in the event I'm not the event team or event planning but thinking about how do we if we're gonna have sessions at this conference which of course we are let's run them by the community first and see what they think about it you know like all of these things if we're gonna announce the dates we're gonna announce the keynotes announce everything first in the community and then to everybody else so trying to get that community mindset going for everybody is a Full time job in itself, but then also maintaining the community and then
1: planning ahead. So I'm really excited that I get to expand my team so we can actually get this done. Congratulations on that. That's so exciting that you got to hire for that role. So it sounds like, you know, there's a lot of conversation happening and there's so many things that your community members can connect on. I'm curious what moderation looks like inside this kind of community. Does it, you know, because these people are professional and working in similar roles, do you, do you find that it's like fairly simple?
0: to moderate it? Oh, there's basically no moderation at this point. It's just, it's a small group of people asking each other questions. It's really nice because things are just getting started. I know who the top contributors are and they'll come to me if they're not sure if it's okay to post something. Like one person came to me recently and said, hey, I've got this job opening. Is that okay? Can, do you want to post it? Can I post it? And I was like, you go right ahead. Like, I think that it's just so simple right now because it's still pretty small. What a dream. Yeah, I know, right? But obviously it's not a dream for it to be too, too small. So as we grow, I think, more things will come up. But for right now, it's so easy. I mean, everybody's just kind of, I would say self-moderating, but nobody's posting anything that they that they shouldn't be at this point. You know, I'm just trying to jump in and keep conversations going. Uh, make sure if somebody asks a question
1: that it's getting answered. And you mentioned that the, you've already been able to identify some of the top contributors. How do you like elevate them and, you know, encourage them to keep going?
0: Well, we just are really getting started with that. Because, you know, the community is so new. So identifying them, it's actually not, not too hard because they're the ones clear Like you can look at the stats that's going on in the community, but I also am like, because it's so small, I'm able to really look at what types of contributions they're making, the deep contributions that they're making. So, not just, you know, are they just asking questions, but are they answering them? All these different pieces, just looking at the whole map of how everybody's contributing. So, I started a channel for them in our Slack workspace and they get everything early. So, if we're going to announce something in the community early, we're going to announce it to them even earlier. Little things like that for now, handwritten cards. Happy New Year cards for all of them. I'm really big into handwritten cards to the to the point that I probably shouldn't be. But when I when I left Atlassian... So I handwrote the cards to the leaders uh, before we did a big um, event. And I handwrote 40 cards. And I remember every day on the way to work, I would just write cards. you know <laughs> And they were all really special. They were all personalized. And when I left Atlassian, that was something that I heard from multiple people is how much they appreciated that I took the time to do that. Anyway, I'm a big believer in, in handwriting cards as long as it doesn't kill you to do it. But little things like that for our top contributors so that they know that they're appreciated. But for now, it's very casual. It's not a very fleshed out program, I guess. So it's just what can I do to make them feel special right now and make them feel like they're part of a really exciting group. And then you know, as we roll out this new community platform and really start building that, they'll get a first look at everything and be able to give feedback and not just get a first look and say what they like and don't like. And then we keep going. It's really... They'll get a first look early on as to what we're thinking and then we really listen to that feedback and implement it into what we do.
1: I love that. And that, you know, I I like what you said about, you know, the handwritten cards. I also do that and I'm a big believer in that. And it doesn't, you don't have to have a huge budget and you don't have to, you know, have this like fleshed out program to be able to make people feel really special. And I think handwritten cards are such a great way to do that. So I I love that you took the time and it definitely sets you apart and really makes people feel special and remembered. So as you're building out this community, I think it's so exciting that you to do it pretty much from scratch. How are you setting up the success metrics of it? And how how are you measuring that?
0: I always look at two threads in terms of success metrics for community. And one is around health and one is around the business. So to have a healthy community, you need people to join the community and you need to convert them when they join and they need to be engaging and you know how many people are becoming inactive or how many people are becoming more active. But all of those community health metrics to start. And then there's the other thread. So thinking about what you're aiming towards as a business and so the reason that I am so excited to be reporting up to our CEO, which we haven't really talked about yet, but I, I roll up to our CEO so that the community can touch all parts of the business. And in terms of setting goals, you know, now that I roll up to our CEO, I can look at our top level goals as a business. And the first things that get prioritized are the things that help impact what we're trying to do as a company. So... That's that's kind of what the goal setting is going to look like. And now the next step is sitting down with Jeff, our CEO, my OKRs. And tied to that is that I'm going to have a goal that's shared with every single leader of every single other team, which I think is community dream right there. And so every single other team from the exec team, everybody who reports to our CEO is going to have a shared goal with community.
1: I think that's so amazing. And I, I remember seeing that tweet when you announced that you recently moved from marketing to report directly to the CEO. I think that's so amazing, like for for you personally, but also for the community industry in general. I think it, it really makes a statement and it shows that that's where community belongs and it doesn't always need to sit under marketing. So congratulations on that. That's absolutely massive. So I want to shift gears here again and really dive into community and mental health. I think it's a topic that is is definitely top of mind for me. And I, I think, you know, others in the field are starting to open up about it. So I think all of us can kind of agree that building community is definitely not for the faint of heart. It's a lot of fun. It's very rewarding. But there's so many things that community professionals deal with, like nonstop pushback, long hours, low salaries, like you mentioned, being under oh resourced trolls, <laughs> I can <laughs> kind of, yeah, I can go through a full list of things. And I feel like this can be a whole episode on its own. But I, I want to get you to share a little bit of your journey. I know that you wrote several blog posts about this and you were fairly open about it. So can you share a few of your lower points throughout your career in community?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So just to, it's funny you say community is not for the faint of heart, because I think I wrote exactly that in one of my blog posts. So I, I wrote a blog post called The Broken Seesaw. And it was all about work-life balance and working in the community field. I highly recommend if anybody wants to um, dig into that a little bit more. It was so popular that I had to write a follow up the next day to clarify some things and to to add some additional things. So, highly recommend that. And I was very, very open and sharing some very personal things in that blog post. And the reason I did it is because we don't talk about it. Everybody wants to share their successes and nobody wants to talk about the difficult things that happen on your way to getting there. Or when you're already successful and things are still not perfect, you don't have it all figured out. And I don't see enough stories like that. And I'm not just saying that for community. I think I'm saying that for everything. just don't really see people talking about their struggles. So I really wanted to just put it all out on the table. And it was scary. And it was hard to do. But from the responses that I got, I don't regret it at all. I mean, a lot of people came to me and said, this made me look in the mirror. And I I saw who I am and myself and why it's so important to, to be thinking about balance. So I wrote a lot of it there. But as a community professional, you are deeply invested in... In not just the success of your role and the success of the community and the business, but in the individuals that are in your community. I think you'd be hard-pressed to find someone that has been in a community for a while that doesn't have very special relationships with people that have been in their communities, no matter what. I mean, even if you're not in the community every day talking to people and you're you know, community strategist and whatever it is, you, you have these relationships. And so I think that it just hits on a completely different level because you are so so emotionally attached to the work that you're doing. And generally, most community professionals are very empathetic. It's something that you look for in a community professional. And when you have someone or people on your team that are extremely empathetic and the work you're doing is is emotional and difficult and you have to deal with difficult people too and you take it personally, it becomes overwhelming at times and expectations are certainly high. You're usually under-resourced. So it becomes really tough for a community professional. And I think that we have to take a step back and look at what we're going to do as an industry to improve this situation. Everybody has to do that. But for community specifically, because it is just so deeply personal and emotional. And a lot of people don't don't take care of themselves. Community is 24-7 too. It never stops. So if you're under-resourced or it's just you, what do you do? Like, How do you pump the brakes to take care of yourself? And I think that being under-resourced is one of the things that we have to fix. You just wouldn't see this happen in a lot of other industries, a situation where somebody didn't have coverage at all to go on a vacation, or somebody had to bring a marketer in to or whatever it is, you know, somebody else in to manage the community while they were gone, even if they didn't know anything about it. So work-life balance, it's it's just it's really tricky. And um, especially if you love what you do and you're passionate about what you do, it's hard to stop, but you have to stop. You can't ever Be the best version of yourself if you don't. And I think I said this in my blog post, but really, the best kind of support that you'll ever get is the support that you give yourself, truly. And you have to do that first before you can really do what you need to do in your role and in the community. And... We constantly are thinking about putting others first, and we're constantly thinking about pushing other people into the spotlight. But to best serve your communities, you have to you have to serve yourself first. Um, and a great example, Claudio Castro, who uh, was on our team at Salesforce, is in communities at Facebook now, I believe. You know, he used an example um, of when you're on a plane and you use your oxygen mask. You have to put it on yourself before helping
1: others, and it's really the same thing here. You totally nailed that. I think you're right. Like a lot of people don't really talk about their struggles or their failures. That's kind of that's why my community fuck up nights exists to really get people to share their biggest failures and their struggles and mental health is is a huge part of the conversation there as well. And what I focus on there is people from all different industries, all all different professions, entrepreneurs, you name it. But there there haven't been a lot of people coming forward from from the community industry. And I think there's so many unique challenges and really unique. And mental health issues that that come up directly through there because it's just like you said. There's so many unique things that are happening, and we're so invested in the success of our community. But I'm I'm really glad to see that the conversation is starting, and people like yourself who are people look up to so much in your LinkedIn and everything. It can look so <laughs> intimidating and so successful, but it, it takes people like yourself to really open up that conversation and share that it's it's not all perfect. Not everything that you see online and in the highlight reel is uh, is really what's happening.
0: Yeah, exactly. And when you told me about fuck up nights, I was
1: like, Oh my God, this
0: is the best. Like this is, this is what people can connect to in a really authentic way, you know? And, and more of that. We need to share more, more, more of that. You're absolutely right. There's a highlights reel and that's what people talk about. And they want to look successful and you know, nobody wants to look vulnerable. But the reality is we all are in whatever way. And if there's something that I've gone through that can help somebody else, I'm going to put it out there. And so I'm really honest. I'm a really open book now. I, I talk about everything on my blog and I don't really filter anything because I think there's no point.
1: I love that. Honestly, like my biggest lesson through running fuck up nights for the last almost four years is that the most successful people, the most successful companies are usually the ones that are failing the most because you're, you're taking risks. You're doing something that hasn't necessarily been done before and failure and struggle is kind of inherent to that. And it's all about how you get through it. And it's all about being vulnerable and helping others learn from your mistakes. So again, really thank you for being so open and sharing your journey. So I wanted jump into your personal community. I think it's really fascinating how community professionals navigate their personal communities outside of work. So I want to start off with the city where you're based. So you're in Austin, Texas. I'm dying to visit there. I think it's such an exciting place to be. Tell me a little bit about why you chose the city, why you came back to it and why it's special to you.
0: I grew up in a suburb just north of Dallas called Plano, Texas and went to school here in Austin, fell in love with it, had my first job here in Austin and stayed for a while and then went to San Francisco, followed love to San Francisco, not my husband. So anyway, I, I moved to Oakland for a couple of years and then spent eight years in San Francisco. But the whole plan always, always, always was to come back to Austin. Austin felt like home. So, you know, when I'd come back to Texas to visit, I'd go to Dallas and it was great to see my friends and family. But like when I'd step off the plane in Austin, it felt like home. So I, I knew I would always come back here and I was trying to weasel my way into coming back here a million times over. And my husband is from a really, really small town uh, in Central California, really close to Slow. And and so we loved living in San Francisco, but we were kind of just done. And Austin's a really good compromise for him being from a really small town, but loving living in San Francisco. And clearly we made a really good decision. We moved here about four years ago and now it's just the boom. Like you cannot buy a house in Austin. They're gone you know, within <laughs> within minutes being put on the MLS. So it's just, it's been really um, an interesting experience because Austin was always home to me before it became this mecca for people to come move to. I, you know, there was, it was just kind of, a college town for a really long time and you know you'd eat your breakfast tacos and there was nothing nothing crazy here and now it's changed so much but i still feel like i love the vibe of austin and like i said it's changed a lot and i wish it was still a little bit like the old austin but
1: there's good stuff that comes with it for sure it has to evolve so outside of work what are some of your other interests and passions and are there any other communities that you're part of i mean obviously i was traveling so much before the pandemic this is certainly certainly. certainly the longest I've
0: gone probably in... I can't even tell you how many years. So it was... My husband and I were just traveling constantly. And then trying to think of like what communities... I mean, so I've been really honest about this too, that my husband and I are going through the IVF process. And and that's been an emotional roller coaster and taken a ton of time. And so being a part of some of these like fertility communities online has been really, really helpful to understand what procedures people are going through and what's working, what's not working, a bunch of different stuff like that. And then um, in some different other, Group so Shalom Austin, which is uh, the feder- Jewish Federation here in Austin, so they do tons of different work in the community. So a part of their women's philanthropy group, so figuring out what we can do to help the community, especially this year. You know, there's been a lot going on with COVID, of course, and food insecurity. And they do like kind of small loans to help people. It's not even loans. I don't think they have to pay them back, <laughs> but like helping people pay their bills and stuff um, as things are tricky this year. So I do do work with them. I did a lot of stuff around the election. So writing postcards and stuff like that, that stuff's really important to me and making sure that we're thinking about voter disenfranchisement. So that. And then also now I'm starting to get involved and looking for possibly being on the board of the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation in Austin, really hoping that we can have a cure in my lifetime. And so getting a lot more involved there and figuring out where I can be the most valuable in terms of helping out that organization because they are really focused on you know fundraising and spreading awareness about this disease that
1: nobody really wants to talk about. That's amazing that you're able to give back in that way and to be part of these communities that are so meaningful to you. That's really cool. So this is a little bit of a strange question, but love asking it. How do you choose your people? You know, like really the five to six people that are closest to you, do you feel like you sort of look for certain qualities or do they kind of just come into your life more organically?
0: Definitely come into my life more organically. I am, to everyone's surprise, I'm definitely an introvert. I thrive in kind of one-on-one situations, but not necessarily in big groups. And I am also the kind of person I don't have tons and tons of friends. I have like my core group, and those are the people that are most important to me, and that I invest you know all of my time in, and certainly acquaintances and all that and such. But that's not my biggest focus. Isn't accumulating as many friends as possible? And I I have a hard time with people that that is their goal. So how do I find my people? I don't know. I think it happens more organically. I think about some of my best friends, and they've just been people that kind of stumbled across along the way, and I think it. Might surprise a lot of people when I say uh, one of my best friends is Erica Cool. She was my boss for almost five years. And we just, our relationship grew, you know, over the years into realizing that we were just best buds. And it's just a really lucky situation. You know, we still go to each other all the time for advice on things that we're working on, but really just, we're just friends. And it's just funny because if you read any of my blog posts sharing kind of my history, I just was obsessed with Erica for the longest time. And it's just funny that we're, we're really good friends now. So I love that. And I've got my friends from a long time ago. And I mean, I'm still best friends with somebody that I was friends with in kindergarten. So it just, you know, people I pick up along the way, I guess, and really, really good people that um, that there's no judgment and you can have a good time with and really just enjoy as humans, whether they're different than you or the same as you. That's kind of how I've accumulated my <laughs> close friends.
1: I love that. I can totally relate to that. And I'm I'm also I think a lot of people are kind of surprised at this leading a community like fuck up nights that I'm actually pretty introverted in my personal life. And I also really thrive in one on one situations or smaller groups and kind of keep my my personal community pretty tight as well. So I, I I love that. So my last question for you is and I ask this of everybody on the podcast, what does the word community mean to you? Oh,
0: that's a tough. <laughs> that's a, You left a really hard one for the last question. I'm mean, I mean, I am not going to lie, and it feels so cheesy to say this. I almost don't want to, but like, I see the word community, and it just fills me with joy. It fills me with excitement and appreciation. And I'm a very visual person. So literally just seeing the word, it makes me fulfilled and feel so happy and feel like I'm happy to be a part of something like that. And I think possibly a very visual reaction for me for all the times that I was looking for community management jobs. And if I'd see community in a job title somewhere, I'd be so excited to see that. And then the first time I went to community management conference, cmx which i wrote a blog post about how i ended up there and what that meant to me you know and seeing community in that and it's just something that it's a word that has followed me for a while or that i've followed for a while and yeah it just fills me with a lot of a lot of joy and pride too i guess you know i'm really proud to have my name associated with something that brings me so much joy
1: that makes me so happy as well awesome holly thank you so much for joining me again thank you for having me it was so much fun chatting with you you too I had such a great time chatting with Holly, and I hope you learned as much as I did from this episode. You can find Holly on LinkedIn and Twitter at Holly Firestone, and I'd also highly recommend checking out her blog on Medium at hollyfirestone.medium.com. Thanks for tuning in to Create Community, a podcast where I chat with incredible community builders to define what community truly means. You can check out the series on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you normally listen. Please remember to subscribe and leave us a rating and review. I'd really love to hear your feedback. You can also follow us on Instagram at createcommunitypod or check out our website at createcommunitypod.com for updates. Once again, I'm Marsha Drucker, your host, signing off. A huge thank you to Origins Media House for producing this series. You can find them at OriginsMediaHouse.com, where house is spelled H-A-U-S, or on LinkedIn and Instagram at Origins Media House and Twitter at Origins Media.